Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. We're a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network and the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, a series of author-hosted podcasts uh, distributing literary content to a worldwide audience. I'm your host, Landis Wade, a recovering trial lawyer turned author turned podcaster of books and stories, and I really appreciate you being here. Very quickly, before we get to the uninterrupted interview today, a few quick words about some of the benefits uh, for our listeners. Number one, we have show notes uh, for every episode uh, with images, links, and information about our authors at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And number two, if you're into audiobooks, uh, we have a relationship with Libro.fm, which supports indie bookstores. If you sign up with Libro to get your audiobooks and use the promo code CHARLOTTEREADER, you'll get an extra audiobook free. Number three, if you go to charlottereaderspodcast.com or my personal website, landisway.com, and you sign up for the book report, you're going to get it every other Tuesday. And here's what you'll get. Recommended readings, author interviews and videos, reading and writing tips, doses of inspiration, a free ebook by yours truly, and more. We won't spam you. That takes way too much time. And finally, we've got a lot of great content that we put out on our exclusive Patreon channel. If you like what we do here, uh, that is our mission of helping authors give voice to their written words, and you'd like to help us uh, defray the costs of this project, you can jump over to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, and you can tap into all the great extra content we've got that's curated by our authors and me about uh, their writing lives and the craft and business of writing and other things too. But enough with the prologue. Let's get to the uninterrupted story of our guest and the one they've written. In today's episode, we visit with award-winning writer Claire Fullerton, author of Little T, a captivating story of Southern life and the complexities of friendship and family in 1980s Mississippi. When childhood friends Celia, Rennie, and Ava reunite at Rennie's lake house, Celia realizes there's no better place to accept her own past than in this circle of friends who have remained beside her throughout the years. Cassandra King Conroy, author of The Same Sweet Girls, had this to say about Little T. Claire Fullerton skillfully draws us into this lost world of Southern traditions and norms where the past tragedies cast long, dark shadows on present-day lives and no one ever truly escapes. The book is a finalist for the uh, Faulkner Society International William Wisdom Competition, August Book Selection, the Pulpwood Queens Book Club, and uh, finalist for the Chanticleer Reviews Somerset Awards. Claire, welcome to the show. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm glad glad to have you on the show. And uh, you're you're recording with me from Malibu, California. And I uh, am. I yeah. Am. And we're doing this uh, in late November, right around Thanksgiving. It's a nice day here in Charlotte, but I'm sure it's a nice day in Malibu too. I'll make you jealous. <laughs> there, there's a glare coming through my window from the. Re- 
bright blue sky reflecting upon the ocean view. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say congratulations on the book, but after that, I don't know. But the, <laughs> uh, yeah, but but seriously, uh, congratulations on this uh, on this book, and uh, although having to come out in the time of Corona, you know. I appreciate it. You know, I found out since um, I had the pleasure of back and forth emails with you, Landis, that Little T won second place in the Book of the Year uh, awards being, you know, 2020 by the Independent Authors Network. And right. then it won first place in that same competition's category of literary fiction. And it was a, a, a big surprise, and I had no idea they were going to give me monetary compensation, mm. but they did. So that <laughs> that was a lanyap, as they say in Louisiana. I love that word. Thank you for letting me use it. And um, it's it was out May 1st. And as we know, the, the corona situation in America was such, or COVID situation in America was such, that it, it seemed at first that we were taking it week by week. Like, well, surely everything will open up next week. And then it got into next month and all of that. So I spent the the, the first few weeks of Little T's release wondering if I was going down south to Memphis and, and Jonesboro, Arkansas. I was going to go there and I was going to go to Jackson, Mississippi and wherever else I was going to go. I had 12 stops lined up to go and see everybody in person because I love that meeting readers and, you know, answering questions and just talking about books in general, not necessarily just little T. And that's just one of the fun parts of being an author. And it seemed to me incrementally, I heard, well, this is canceled. This is canceled. This is canceled. So as you can imagine, I'm all the more grateful to be here with you today talking about this book. Well, you know, it's just that one door closes, another opens. It happened for me. I was in the studio uh, recording, and then suddenly that shut down. And so I had to figure out a new way to engage. And look what it does. It lets me talk to authors in Malibu, California. You know, It does. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great thing. I love uh, your attitude. <laughs> let's talk about the book cover a second and, and the title of the book, starting with the book cover. It's uh, will you describe, Our listeners can't see it. Of course, this is audio, but uh, they'll be able to see it in the show notes, which is at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Um, this cover, it's got, uh, you know, a little bit of green in it, uh, little brush strokes, but there's an old mansion of a house featured here, but it has kind of a darkness to it. And uh, I'm just curious about that feature of this book cover and what you can tell me about that. Thank you so much for asking. I am so pleased with this book cover. And the reason why is typically when uh, an author is preparing to release a book, they will be given from their publisher a list of questions. And one of them is, is what is your vision for the book cover? And I had it in my mind's eye precisely that I wanted it to look like a painting. I didn't want any people in it. I didn't want it to be, you know, glossy like a photograph or any of that. So, so a painting that had character to it and something a little world weary, not necessarily shop worn, but something that spoke of, of an intriguing history. And I sent them a, a photograph that I found on Pinterest and it was similar to how the cover turned out. But of course you get into rights and this and that and the other. And it, it wasn't that I wanted to use that photograph. It was that I wanted to come as close as possible to the to the spirit of the image. 
and they hit it right on the head. I mean, they came back immediately and I said, this is it. And so what we have on the cover of Little T is um, a two-story wooden balustered and verandas, the top veranda, the bottom veranda, of what is essentially the first third of the house. So it's at a little bit of a, of a torque. It's not the house straight on, which I, I like that because that suggested to me um, caution when you enter. And I think that in terms of the South as place or a house as place, if these walls could talk sort of thing, that was what I wanted to capture. And I'm very, very satisfied with this book cover uh, for just that reason. And not to do it in black and white, I, I came close to saying, can we do it in black and white? But then I understood that uh, black and white covers rarely, you know, readers rarely find a black and white cover compelling. So we added a little bit of a hue and my favorite color, which is, you know, like, like a natural green that you would mm -hmm. find in nature. So, yeah, that's the cover of Little T and no people um, know anything other than the idea of what do you think is going on in this house? Let me stop you there. You got a cat in the background there? Of course I do. <laughs> <laughs> I have three German shepherds and yeah. a cat and this cat is, oh, my God. All right, we've now removed the cat from the premises, so that uh, we could we can you, you you had to go feed your cat. We took care of that, so we're we're good. We're good. Back to the book cover for just a second. Um, you do describe this well with the two stories. The one thing I uh, is I'm looking at this when I talked about darkness and the shades. The windows are closed. Uh, there's curtains. There's a little shading on the top veranda and the bottom, almost like there are efforts being made to keep the secrets in and not let them out? Very astute observation of you, of course, or perhaps or perhaps we don't live here anymore. That could be true, yeah. That's true, yeah. Um, and so where would this, would, would this uh, mansion be? Would it be in Como, Mississippi or Memphis, yes. Tennessee? Yes, in Como, Mississippi. And I had it in my mind's eye as I was writing Little T um, to have it be a third generation what we used to call a plantation. And today we would call it a working farm. But third generation at one time, it was the Wakefield plantation. And Celia Wakefield's grandfather and then her father um, were, were the, you know, the land owners. I, I put it on 320 acres of land that produced cotton and soybean and I put a, uh, a fishing pond on this property and I put in the very, very back a, a caretaker's cottage that was collectively six rooms. And that's where Thelonious Winfrey, who's the groundskeeper and the overseer of the Wakefield Plantation, um, he's a black man, an outdoorsman, a woodsman, knows the lay of the land and the woods as if it were the back of his hand. And as I was writing about this, I said, now who lives with Thelonious? Well, his wife, of course, and they have a daughter and they named her after 
Thelonious, they named her Thelonia. And in the South, we gave everybody a nickname as a term of endearment. And I said, well, of course, the daughter's name is Little T. So Little T lives in the caretaker's cottage out back. And Celia Wakefield, who is telling the story, it is her story, her growing up on 320 acres of plantation land with her best friend, Little T. So Celia is white and Little T is black. And I said it in 1980s. And I said to myself as I was writing this now, what were the social mores and considerations in the 1980s Deep South, specifically in Como, Mississippi? What would that have been like? Would people have raised an eyebrow at a white girl and a black girl being best friends, running around footloose and fancy free? What were they thinking? What did the people around them think? What did their parents think? What did everybody think? And so the story of Little T um, created itself because I set out to tell the story of female friendships. I was telling the story of Celia Wakefield flying down south to reunite with two of her childhood friends. She's now in her late 40s. Flying down south, she was hesitant to do that, I say, in the first couple of pages. And I got to page 25, Landis, and I said, now I have to answer the question because the reader wants to know. Why is Celia Wakefield hesitant to go back home, to go down mm. south? Reader yeah. wants to know why. And that's when I created Little T. Well, and, and, and the reader's also thinking, because as you start this book, it is uh, it starts with a scene where the, the protagonist, Celia, is, uh, she's gotten a call from one of these friends, Rennie, and she says, you need to come back because Ava needs our help. And this, you know, so you immediately know there are these three women who've had a past. You don't know about it yet, but she's going to drop everything, fly across country, go to this lake house, Rennie's lake house, and they're going to spend a weekend together. And while you're following this, you're thinking, what does little T have to do with this? <laughs> you know, when is little T going to come in? And then so, and so that's when you then, you know, kind of jump back in time and you take us back to Como, Mississippi, and you start telling the story about Celia and you kind of mix those together. So it's interesting that that part of the story didn't come to you until uh, you were trying to figure out what the friends are going to be talking about. And so my question to you is, what is it about Como, Mississippi, Memphis, Tennessee, race relations that caused you to want to tell this story? Did you grow up in the area? Did you have personal experiences? Has it been something that's, that's weighed on you? Talk about that. Thank you. Um, I did grow up in Memphis. Um, I was born in Wyzetta, Minnesota, which is the lake area outside of Minneapolis. And my mother born and raised in Memphis and my father, a Yankee from the Lake of the Isles area uh, of Minneapolis. And so I spent the first 10 years in Minnesota. And then my father died early and my mother moved, my three brothers and I, back home to the house she grew up in. And so I consider myself a Southerner because my the significant part of my coming of age uh, is in Memphis. My mother's from Memphis. Um, everybody around me you know, there were very few outsiders in the 1970s, Memphis. And so I love to write about Southern culture, especially since I've been living in California for more than 20 years. I find myself a little nostalgic for uh, the romanticized version of the South. I, I think it's true. 
what you hear about uh, the beautiful genteel South in my mind is still firmly intact. And I'd love to write about it because it's the people and the, the Southern traditions, the social mores, their, their way of communicating with each other. It's different here in California. And so I find that my focus is laser sharp because I am geographically removed. And I find that because that's the case, that I'm geographically removed, that I can be as honest as I want to about my opinion about that. I happen to see the good and the good only. And I, uh, with regard to the racial tensions and this and that and the other, I do not have a political stand one way or the other because growing up in the Deep South in the 1970s, uh, conditions were a state of affair, which I did not question past judgment on or any of that, uh, nor am I doing it in hindsight. I will add that I am not doing it in hindsight because I think that everything has to be seen within the context of present day, you know, yeah. and so it, it's interesting. But that was what was uh, timely about Little T was you think about when authors write a book and by the time they get it signed and they get it out in the world, it's a process that may entail close to two years. And so it, so for Little T to have been released in May of 2020 uh, amidst, uh, you know, a, a little bit of culture uh, disruption, if you will. Yeah. And you've taken, you know, different settings, different cultures, different races. Um, you've mixed them together in this novel, but you do deal with some inner conflict in the protagonist because, you know, she says when she gets to Memphis, uh, Blacks and whites never commingled in Memphis, even though they did coexist. But there was this impenetrable wall that separated the races. And I'd been raised in a footloose environment where it didn't matter so much. In other words, she grew up with little T. She was friends, but then she moves to Memphis and she starts to run into these rules, you know, these sort of maybe unspoken sometimes rules. Unspoken, and that's yeah. the key, Landis, unspoken yeah. rules. And you asked why Como, Mississippi, and the, the succinct answer to that is it's 45 miles south of Memphis. And I needed to have Celia Wakefield's family have access um, to, to Memphis for a number of reasons and also have it plausible and realistic that there would be ancestral property uh, a short 45 minutes south of uh, in, a, in a house and grounds that the family had no need to, to let go of. And so where whereas Coma, Mississippi was where Celia Wakefield spends the first 10, 11 years of her life before her father accepts a job 45 miles north in Memphis, um, it was an entirely different environment then moving to Memphis in the big city. And when Celia gets to the big city, the family does not let go of their plantation grounds in Coma, Mississippi. They use it as a weekend retreat. Uh, they, they, they come and go, but, but they primarily live in Memphis where Celia is educated and where she meets her two friends, Riddy and Ava. Um, so it's all happening at once. And the story of Little T is such that it does focus on a long extended girlfriend's weekend, uh, a reunion. They're at the lake in Haber Springs, Arkansas, because Rennie owns a lake house on the lake, has a boat, the whole nine yards. 
And what a wonderful place for, for three friends who grew up together and haven't seen each other in 10 years or so to, to convene. And as they are in the present time trying to help their friend Ava, whose marriage hangs in the balance, she's disenchanted with her marriage and she's drinking too much. So they're at the lake and they're talking about life and love and marriage and history and family and all of these things that they know about each other, because I wanted to discuss the way that women speak to each other, the way they relate to each other when nobody else is around, and those inside jokes that they have when you can say two sentences and the other two take off running with it, because you know each other so well. You've got the goods on each other. You've got the history. Nobody needs to say a lot of anything because all three women know. And and I, it was that magic that I wanted to capture. And uh, I, I believe I did. And I used as triggers, one of the girls in present day would say, do you remember this? Or it reminds me of that. And it would trigger something in Celia Wakefield about a memory having to do with the way she grew up in coma with little T. And I liked the whole thing to unfold in two different timelines because I, I, I like the idea as a writer of what is this person hiding and what's this person hiding and what's that? Because everybody's on their best behavior and everybody's acting as if everything's just grand. What are you really hiding? And so that's that, what I wanted to explore in Little T. Let's put ourselves back in that time. You've got a little reading here that you're going to do. Um, let's set that up. You know, what's going on just before you're going to start reading and then, uh, when you set it up, just uh, this read this little piece for us, if you would, please. Prior to this piece, when Celia Wakefield walks into the entrance hall of her family home in Como, Mississippi, Celia and her brother Hayward, who is 18 months her elder, and little T are out in the front yard throwing the stick for Rufus, who is her brother Hayward's coonhound dog. And little T we come to discover, is an anomaly in Como, Mississippi, in that she's the undisputed uh, track and field champion of anywhere in the area. Little T can run. And Hayward likes to champion Little T. They've all grown up together by challenging her to a, a race. And so they were in the habit of racing from that front yard all the way down the gravel road to the main road uh, old Panola Road in Como, Mississippi, which actually exists. And that scene had just happened. And of course, Little T beats Hayward and Hayward is ecstatic because he's two years older and a boy and isn't Little T fabulous is Hayward's opinion. And so this has just taken place when Celia and Hayward's elder brother, John Jr., John Wakefield Jr. appears on the veranda and he says, Celia, mother wants to see you. And so we begin. The light was always dim in the entrance hall, irrespective of the, of the time of day. The carved crown molding on its high ceiling matched the dark walnut wood of the floor and door casings, which glowed in polished rosettes above the opening to the formal dining room on the right and the ample living room on the left with the green-tiled solarium behind it. The entrance hall had a central catacomb feel, 
and was always the coolest area of the house. In its cavernous elegance, footsteps were amplified on the maple floors during the months of June through September, then fell to a muted padding when Mom had Thelonious haul the crimson and navy runner from the attic and place it in and place it beneath the foyer's round-centered table. At the end of the hall, behind the stairs, was my father's den and attendant screen porch, but rarely did I visit the interior. My father was a private man, reclusive and solitary by nature, and whether he was in the library or not, the door was always shut. I had to skirt the gladioli arrangement on the entrance hall table. The floral design reached wide with flourishing arms towards the French credenzas against both sides of the walls. My reflection flashed in the armelou mirror as I ran toward the stairs to find my mother. My hair crowned me with the color of night's crescendo, dashing so dark it almost looked purple. I am 100% Wakefield in all that distinguishes the lineage, from the dark eyes and hair to the contrasting fair skin. There has never been a Wakefield to escape the familial nose. It is severe in impression, unambiguous in projection, straight as a line and slightly flared. John and I are mirror images of each other, the yin and the yang of the Wakefield English bloodline. But Hayward was born golden, just like our mother, who comes from the Scottish Montgomerys, whose birthplace is Argyllshire. John and I possess an unfortunate atavistic Wakefield trait, though on me the black shadow is already silence, but on him it plays out as something sinister. John and I are individual variations of our father's dark countenance, which is to say, in our own way, we are loners, people slightly removed. But Hayward got lucky in possessing our mother's shining essence. I could always see an internal light in their green eyes that set off their amber-colored hair. I put my hand on the thick banister and climbed the stairs to the first landing, where my parents' bedroom and living quarters unfurled like wings. The bay window overlooking the garden had its draperies drawn against the searing silver sun. Walking into the sitting room at the right, I called my mother, thinking she may be in the adjoining master bedroom. I'm upstairs, her voice descended. Celia, come up. I want to see you. And this little scene here um, ends with uh, her finding out that she's going to have to move to Memphis. And she sees it uh, as the end of their lives as she knew it, which launches her onto another part of her life. And, uh, you know, you've built a mystery into this, too. You've got these two timelines. You've got a mystery. But it's also about women, as you said, talking about their lives and Ava's unhappiness in her marriage. And there was a nice scene in the book. Uh, it was a quote here about uh, happiness. It was, uh, this is Celia talking, I believe. I almost told Ava that happiness is a moving target because in those rare moments when I thought I'd found it, it turned out it was too elusive for me to sustain. And so you have these two women sort of talking to each other about the idea of happiness. What do you think about that idea? Happiness. I think it's one thing to one person and a, and totally another to the next because everything is relative and everything is subject to our uh, frame of reference and our intended interpretation, which is always going to be subject to, to who we are. And I'm fascinated in that subject that you can have 
one situation and three women that see it from three different angles. And in the case of Little T with, with the three women, Celia, Rennie, and Ava, what we have essentially is the profound question on the nature of life, love, and happiness. What is it? What's it mean? Is it attainable? What's your understanding on this? And I liked what Celia said to Ava when Ava said, I mean, seriously, she says to her best friends, I mean, y'all tell me because I really want to know what is the definition of happiness? Because I have a husband. You know, I, I, I have a job. I live in a nice place and I'm miserable. So what's wrong with me? Because I'm miserable. And so this is the kind of subject that you will only broach with your good friends, because typically in life with our acquaintances, we want everybody to think we're OK. We're fine. Everything's fine. How are you? I'm grand. Everything's fine when it's not. And so only amongst your friends can you uh, be entirely confessional. And so whereas Ava seemingly on paper had everything that, that should produce happiness, um, she did not. So she's saying to her friends, is there something wrong with me? And Celia responds and says, your definition of, of happiness is up to you. And my definition of happiness is up to me. And it doesn't make anybody right and anybody wrong. What it does make us is accountable to the experience that we're having because we're creating our way of relating to it. It's not that there aren't good and bad times in life. It's how we relate to it and therefore how we manage it. And I, I like the idea of that so much that I have the girls um, as they're, they're pondering life, you know, having these conversations when, when they're mulling over, um, what does good marriage mean? You know, what does success mean? What does all of this mean? Well, it means one thing to me and another. Okay, let's talk about it. And I, I love the idea of that because with some of these existential questions, uh, there, there is no right and wrong. There is no there to get to. There is no definitive answer. It's only the, you know, the fact that we're living in the question to begin with uh, that, that is challenging, if you will. And so I had that in little T and, and I wanted to say that there were times when I was writing, when I thought, now don't pontificate, Claire, as a writer, don't let anybody pontificate here because, you know, personally, I believe nobody's got the answer. So therefore this is where, um, I had fun because I was always interjecting humor in it. Because if you find three women, best friends, the one thing they are is funny. The one thing they are is sarcastic. The one thing they are is, you know, lighthearted and supportive and all of this when it comes to each other. And I found that that sarcasm and humor is a Southern birthright. And and, you know, women especially employ it willingly that you know, the worst thing in the world can happen. And, you know, Southern women will, will turn it into a comedy. So I like the idea of that, and I did put it in much of the dialogue of, you know, the three friends. With that in mind, um, you've got these three female characters. You've got Little T from the past. Um, you ramp up the tension a little bit by having uh, old boyfriends show up that weekend at the lake. Uh, you know, Ava's old boyfriend, Mark, uh, Cecilia's old boyfriend Tate, they show up and they add a dynamic to drive the tension up a little bit to, to get them thinking about 
what might have been in the past. Uh, and so I guess my question to you is because authors sometimes write to try to figure out things in their own lives or figure out things about themselves. Uh, you're dealing with a lot of topics here. Were there certain things that you figured out about yourself or about the world around you in writing about these topics and putting these women down and having them engage in this dialogue? It is, uh, you have just asked my favorite question because I have noticed, um, you know, as I've gotten older, what strikes me are all the friends that I have in Memphis and, and I keep in touch with a lot of them. And that's the good thing about, you know, being raised in the South is they never let you go. I've been in California for more than 20 years and everybody, oh, Claire's, you know, one of us. And, and I'm grateful for that. I love that. I honor that. Uh, and, you know, with great mirth, I can say, you know, people in California that I know have no earthly idea what my frame of reference in life is in general, but that's okay. I don't explain myself. And, but, but, you know, in Memphis, and all of that, we spend a lot of times talking about our youth. We spend a lot of times using as our salient touchstone, our foundation, if you will, those glory days when we were all in high school, we were all good looking, we were all young and free, we all had the tail, you know, the world by the tail, we all had, you know, bright hope for the future, we were all gonna, we were gonna, we were gonna, and and, and I like the idea of that. And I have noticed because I am one of these authors that takes scrupulous notes. Whenever I engage in a conversation worth writing down, I put it in my journal. Whenever somebody says something, there's a line, there's a whatever. And I have found that, that you know, if I'm patient enough, some of these things will work their way, you know, in, in, into the stories and the novels that I write because I like writing about people, humanity, what, who they really are, what's really going on, what they're hiding, what they're hoping for, what they're not achieving, how they're managing that. I, I, I love all of that. And so back to your question, Landis, which is um, when three childhood and then high school and then some friends been together, now they're in their late 40s. When they convene, what do they talk about? They talk about how it used to be. They talk about what it is, that time and place that they all had in common. They use it as a touch, touchstone and, and a foundation. And, and I find that fascinating. And I've often asked myself, you know, at what juncture do we graduate from our glory days? And, and do we own and accept what is now and who we are now? And, and, and with that acceptance, you know, do we therefore build into our futures according to who we are now? Or are we still looking over our shoulder and saying, you know, you remember when back, you know, when, when we had it all, you know, in our youth and in a whatever. And so I've found that many people do that. I've, I've just observed this, that you, you get together with friends that you knew when you were in your teens or in your early 20s. Now everybody's pushing 50 or they're 50. What do you find that they talk about? How it used to be. And so I, I was, you know, turning over, well, to what degree do we create our own obstacles by not being able to move forward? And in the case of Ava, whose marriage is, is in the balance, and, and there she is at Heber Springs Lake with her two best friends, and she basically is regressing to her misbegotten youth 
She's drinking and carrying on. Why is she doing it? What is this solving? What does she think it's going to solve? I mean, we all get it. You know, we're going to drink. So forget our problems. You know, we all get that. You know, to what degree do you have to move beyond that? You know, I mean, you're going to sink or swim with this because that's not a long range solution. And so I understand you're upset now. You know, the three of us together, we're at the lake, you're drinking. Okay. But I'm telling you what now as your good friend, you know, I have an idea where this is going and, and it's incumbent upon me because I care about you to just go on and say it. And so that is incredibly difficult. And I know many people, you know, you get old enough, you know, all of us got a couple people in our backgrounds drinking too much and, and it, it sets up a moral dilemma. What are we to do about it? Do we deny that it's happening in order to keep the peace and the friendship, not ruffle any feathers? Do we ignore it? Or do we say, I care about you enough, you know, to, even though you didn't ask, to, you know, just say something here. And and we all go through that. All friendships go through that. And, you know, that is a moral dilemma. Do you keep your mouth shut when you think a friend is getting ready to walk down a dead end road? Um, or, or, or do you turn on the light so she can see where that dead end is? And so I think that in writing about friendship, protracted friendships, the kinds that you are emotionally invested in, um, I found in writing Little T, which, by the way, I wrote without an outline until I got halfway into it. And then I started saying, all right, let's let's set a scene here so that we can talk about this. Let's set a, a scene after that so that we can address this. Um, but but just the idea and the subject of friendships fathoms deep. You know, all the things that go into the fabric of a friendship that are essentially played out on the stage of life. And you are hand in hand with someone you've known since you were 11, 12, whatever. And now you're in your 40s. Let's compare notes. And when we compare notes, what's that sound like? So I found that uh, it was it was a really um, a deep, moving, and and rather fun experience. I'll add uh, in writing about female friendships in Little T, and in as much as the three women in their forties, all white, all doing well, all coming from good quote unquote families in the South, and then the friendship of Celia and Little T, who was black, and all that that uh, inherent setup um, allowed me to explore, that I really felt like I got to take a look at the entire gamut of the possibilities in a friendship. And, and I think as a writer, you know, this is why I'm writing. This is why I'm writing. I'm not saying I'm right. I'm essentially for the reader posing questions so that the reader can read any book I've ever written and say, um, well, well, here is my interpretation. Here's my take on it. Here's my understanding of what she's talking about. And so an acting teacher in California a long time ago once said to me the most poignant line I will ever hear. And that was when we were doing a scene study and she stopped the scene and she said, you know, there's not that many different ways to live. And I thought, 
I'm going to remember that line for the rest of my life. And she was so right. And I find that as a writer, um, fiction, I'm able to explore what is, or, or rather what are essentially universal themes. Why? Because there's not that many different ways to live. So these three women, they don't shy from talking to each other. They share their opinions. They share their viewpoints. Um, and you, you discuss a lot of issues through these characters. We've got time for sort of one writing life question before we wrap up this part of the show. Um, you, um, you've written a lot. You, you're, you're well-published. Uh, I like to ask this question of authors who've put a lot of content out there. And the question is, what would you tell your younger writing self something of value that you've learned in your many years of writing that had she known it, uh, it might've helped her with that early writing career? It is this with writing. There is no there to get to. There's only the process. There's only the deepening of the experience. And I think that looking over one's own shoulder is not necessary at all that a, a writer going into it has to have a devil may care area, uh, attitude with it that is um, not sensitive to anybody's opinion or judgment because there's every reason to believe even if you have some areas um, of weakness that what compels you and inspires you to pick up the pen in the first place can and should be trusted and so it is a, it's an investment, this deepening of this God-given calling, in my opinion, because I believe it is God-given if you are prompted to pick up the pen in the first place. And if we aren't following that, because, you know, I, I jokingly said to you that my dear husband, whom I love to distraction, is an audio guy. He has a recording studio. He has a mind like a mathematician. And I live in the fairy world. You know, I care about language and I care about dreaming and I care about sharing the magic and all of these ephemeral things. You would think, you know, I'm the most ungrounded person on the planet by listening to me when I am not. But but these are the things that interest me. Art, the creation of art is a depiction of what it means to be alive. And so, you know, that's the way I'm wired. The other is the way my husband is wired. And I think it's incumbent upon us as human beings to get in touch with how we're wired and then get about the business and the discipline of developing that. And as to where it's all going to go, you know, for me, it's not my business. My business is to, you know, get in the game, stay in the game, develop it check myself for, for doing it for all the right reasons, you know, which is to say for the sheer love of, of doing it and, and for um, the suspicion that, that I should be doing this. And again, where it's all going, I'll figure that out, you know, some other day, but, but my, my, my business is to stay right in the middle of the process and, and just stay attendant to it. That's great. So listeners, uh, you can be able to find out more about Claire Fullerton in the show notes uh, about her book here, little T uh, an award-winning uh, uh, book. We're also going to do something fun now. Uh, Claire and I are going to jump over to our Patreon channel. 
um, where we're going to talk more about our writing life. We're also going to talk about this idea of uh, uh, sort of pre-publication, uh, the plan, the six-month launch plan, and which all authors ought to be thinking about. Uh, so we're going to dive into that. And if you don't know about Patreon, it's uh, it's a place where you can go to get exclusive content and support the podcast. Help me help authors give voice to the written words. It's a nominal fee. You can find it at patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Ridges Podcast, or go to our website, charlotteridgespodcast.com. There's information there. Jump over there and you'll hear Claire and I, um, you know, I'll learn. This, this is my, this is a cheap way to get an MFA, right? I interview over 200 authors and I'll learn all these great facts. And I'm going to learn from Claire in just a moment when we jump over there. Hey, Claire, thanks so much for being a, a part of Charlotte Reader's Podcast. And thank you from the bottom of my heart. What a pleasure. What a pleasure to meet you, Landis. Sincerely, thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.